Hey, everybody. Welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. Welcome to 2023. 2022, good fucking riddance. Glad to be, uh, glad to be past. The, uh, the first guest of the year is an oldie but a goodie, a returning favorite, Greg Kane of the infamous Budagate podcast. Hey, Greg, welcome back on the podcast. Chuck, I'm honored to be on the cast with you and, and look forward to talking to all, all our folks on the, on the pod. Just quick little disclaimer that I, I got to give you. You know, every time there's a movie sequel or a follow-up album, it always sucks. So no pressure on you, buddy. I just want you to know that, though. Uh, we've got a lot of good news here for the audience, and uh, so it, it shouldn't suck. There we go. So, Greg, when you came on, and I think that was November of 2020, you basically laid out just a wild story. Budagate, it was, there's been this massive infrastructure build along the Gulf Coast of Texas and Louisiana. You kind of felt like some supply source needed to be predicted or happening to service that infrastructure build out, you kind of targeted the Buddha and EOG as possibly the the source of that of that extra supply coming on. And you had your reasons why it wasn't going to be Midcon, wasn't going to be Permian. And uh we've been talking a lot kind of the last uh last month and you've had you've 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 shared some uh some pretty wild stuff with me. So I figured I'd have you back on. Kind of give us an update. What's going on? Well, uh, as um, I had been following things very closely, uh, uh, spending two, three days a week uh, driving the upper portion of the play to scout pipelines, and then, of course, visits to every th- every major city and complex refining and. LNG complex and petrochemical complex from Corpus Christi to Lake Charles. And uh, I ran out of money. And, and, then, um, the, the, and then I got another <clears throat> double whammy with COVID. So I had to pretty much put the project on ice, um, you know, as we head into COVID in March and April of 20, I guess that's 2021. Huh? Is that for 2022? I don't know. Anyway. Um, so yeah, 2021. So in any event, um, um, so I was dormant. We talked occasionally. I really, EOG dropped all the leases and it looked like we were back in this same bad position where we have a gigantic infrastructure looking for an oil field and that oil field has gone away. And then I had a, a moment on the road to Damascus. I got kind of hit by lightning. I was um, we, I was hearing a lot of good news about Robertson County, which is my old stomping ground. I did a, a big reef play there in the 90s, and then I, I did some spectacular work, which I'm very proud of, with Tony Villalon and Bob Collar, where we took about a third of the a very significant uh, Bossier discovery by um, 
LL&E Comstock ConocoPhillips on some uh, expiration problems coupled with some title problems. And it's the best piece of work we've ever done. And Jerry Jones, um, during this whole time I was working the Cotton Valley Pinnacle Reef in the 90s and the um, subsequent Bossier plays in the mid-2000s, I always was bumping into Jerry Jones and his people. And they um, they farmed in some of our stuff. Uh, uh, they were trying to figure out if they couldn't drill the reefs under pressure and make them to produce. And then we heard that Jerry was planning to drill a number of tests horizontally in the same area, not looking for, for sandstones and reservoir, just looking for tombstone, um, solid, you know, source rock, it totally impermeable, um, shouldn't produce, but more and more. Hey, Greg, hey, Greg, just real quick, because I remember that old Pinnacle Reef play and that and that Jones was big into it. Basically, you know, you got the ocean and you got a Pinnacle Reef that grows and they're they're relatively small. They could be like 40 acres or so big and you drill into the top of them and about two thirds of them were just full of high pressure gas and it would just blow out everywhere and it was a great well. About a third of them were just flat out wet. Three D seismic couldn't, didn't help you tell whether it was gas or whether it was uh, gas or water. But for the first time, you were able to image something so small as like forty or fifty acres. And uh, he he made a lot of money during that play because that was kind of advent of three D seismic late nineties, as I recall. Yeah, well, we you know we really were the biggest player in that. The, the innovation or the insight what came from Marathon. Marathon pioneered it. And uh, Eddie Pearson uh, generated the, the Pothwell. That was a magnificent discovery, over 100 BCF. And then we got in the play and checkerboarded uh, Marathon and got in uh, their um, Riley Truss well, which was about, I think, a 3040B well. And then we did some additional leasing on the Camp Cooley Ranch, which they didn't do. And we picked up two more wholly owned reefs. And we were doing great. Um, and I was backed by the Hillman family and MCN Corporation. And um, so we were up 200 mil uh, and everything was just rosy. And so we said, well, look, you know, th this population of reefs has got to be uh, – all over the place, and we need and we need to try to find more of them by working further up dip and down dip. And then we went full blown. You know, we I am a title specialist and a competitive lease play specialist. That's my shtick. And we decided to become a full blown exploration company. We staffed up, hired a whole bunch of geologists and geophysicists. We shot a state of the art. 3D with Cytel, which I'm told really was great. And we got a whole bunch of stuff back after processing, and we had reefs all over the place. And we and then the, we brought in three rigs from H&P and went to town, and we just drilled marginal wells and dry holes in succession, and we went from being 200 million up to 200 million down. 
Oh wow! I didn't mean to. Uh, yeah, I didn't mean to divert you off the past. I just no, no, I, no. But I'm just saying, Mary did better than we did. Congratulations, because I mean, we had the the ecstasy and we in reverse. We had the ecstasy and then we had the agony, and yeah. we eventually were invited to uh, hand over the process to uh, Jeff Reckworth and his group, uh, and they didn't have any better luck, and it ultimately yeah. wound up being I worked, a big riddle. I worked on a, a little deal in there with a, a wealthy family that had some acreage and we tried to sell it off. So I didn't mean to uh, divert you off the track. I'll get you back to uh, modern day today, Jerry Jones drilling, but uh, maybe we'll do episode three on the uh, Pinnacle Reef play. Yeah, well, this is, um, this is the, the important thing is the Pinnacle Reef play shows how perilous conventional exploration can be, even when you have the very best data and the very be and you have some in good initial results. It always remains a very perilous and um, feast and famine kind of activity, and primarily famine. So um, when I did the when I did this big infrastructure study, um, Jerry was not in the act. It was strictly an EOG lace play. There were some smaller people in there, like New Golf. Um, a couple other smaller players. EOG bought out almost everybody and then um, applied for the gigantic allowable, 6,400 barrels a day with 20 to 40 million of associated gas on 80 acre spacing. And they got it past the examiners. I think they got some slight uh, emendations where they had to uh, make the unit a little bigger to get the full 6,400 for 80. And so that's a staggering. I mean, that's the highest allowable that the Railroad Commission has ever granted. So that's a really staggering number. And um, the infrastructure um, put in initially by EOG and ETS was significant. They had Stripe go up and lay a 24-inch line, and it zigzagged through the whole field. They started building three, three to five million barrel above ground storage facilities, and they built this gigantic, beautiful, uh, just phase one. There's three planned phases. Uh, um, ethane and propane stripping plants for the gas, full cryo, all stainless, really pretty plant. And so I thought we had something really major going. And then it just all went away. So we switched and started focusing on um, Burleson County chalk. And Burleson County chalk is not very good. <clears throat> but um, I had moved from Huntsville. Uh, to uh, College Station, and uh, but our um, the animal clinic where I, my cat and dog got their shots was still in Huntsville. So one day we were driving back there, and uh, I assumed the Buddha play was you know more bunned or at least in the deep freeze. And I saw a big thirty inch line crossing at Shira, and I went whoa. And then the next thing that happened about two weeks later. Uh, I was going down to a uh, a crab boil from my university, Princeton, and I went through the little. I like to go on country roads because the drive down to Houston is a lot nicer. And I went through the little town of Richards, and I found this gigantic uh, flatbed carrying a big compressor pump. We don't know what because it's tarped. You just see the flange, and these guys were hung up on the rail tracks. They couldn't get off. Now, first thing I want to point out to everybody is, you know, 
the United States Army had a lot of input into the construction of the interstate system. And the interstate system is designed to carry our M1 tanks and all our other big, bulky stuff in the event of a need to reposition the military continentally. And why would this thing be traveling on a back road where it gets hung up on a railroad crossing and people could get killed or a huge accident could occur? It seemed very reckless to me. So I followed the thing bound to uh, Montgomery, and then the load pulled over and did nothing. And it was a big load. I mean, they had police motorcycle escorts, three or four escort vehicles, and this great big flange pump or compressor. So finally, after I pulled into the firehouse there and I said, uh, do you guys see a lot of this stuff? They said, yeah, we're seeing a lot of this stuff on the 105. And I said, where does it go? They said, we don't know. So I go, I get, get up the courage to go talk to these guys. So I walk over and I take out my camera and being a clever, sneaky guy. And I took a bunch of shots of what I could at least get close to on the flange and the pump or whatever it was. And there at the back with the police officers and everything. I met the key guy and I said, hey, you know, I'm working on this EOG infrastructure build out. We think they've got a big discovery in Madisonville. I was wondering if this is part of that infrastructure. And the guy says, uh, we can't talk to you about the load. He's, I said, okay. And he says, and wherever we're going, it's not around here. That's a big fib. He was clearly fibbing. And then he said, and this is a matter of national security, and you need to leave immediately. So I left immediately. And then I knew I was really on to something big. And this is a matter of national security. There's no if, ands, or buts. I don't know if I stressed that in the last um, podcast, but the government is involved in this in a big way. The Obama administration um, initiated and got it all running. And I really have to compliment them because as we go forward in the talk, I think that they have achieved here something comparable to the um, uh, Manhattan Project. You know, a absolutely, you know, they've, they've stumbled onto something about the fracks and these columns of oil and columns of gas. And I think what they found is that all impermeable rocket is now accessible to frack. And that's going to change everything. And they, and there isn't going to be any green energy. That's just a, a maybe a pipe dream or a, or a head fake. We're going to run this country on natural gas. And I think the oil story is there too. Um, and so that's the whole purpose of the podcast is we are in a revolution where we have found this gigantic field, our frac technology now creates reservoir that's just as good as natural reservoir and all eons of uh, detrimental material, which turns into oil and gas coming down off the continent is now all accessible to frack. And I expect oil prices to plummet and gas prices to plummet. And I think this play will coin billionaires. I hope to be one of them. So Greg, take, so, so take me, where you're having this discussion uh, with these folks, where you're taking the the pictures, where about in Texas are you again? The um, the play covers uh, play with infrastructure, takeaway infrastructure co covers eighteen counties and parishes. So the core area um, 
Well, let me just stop for a second. Okay, so um, so the thesis in 2020, when I did the first podcast, the thesis was in trouble because EOG dropped acreage. But now I conclude EOG is playing possum. They dropped the acreage because the infrastructure is so big and the field is so big that they had to replumb the entire Gulf Coast and take the normal pipe, which is like 10s and 12s and 16s, I think 16, and they've replaced that with 30s, 42s, and 48s. So, you know, and remember everybody, your geometry, you know, when you talk about area and volume, you talk about the square, not the linear measurement. So when you start to increase the size of those pipes, the volumetrics go ballistic. I mean, a 48 carries 2.05 million barrels of oil a day, 42 carries 1.3, and 30s, which are everywhere in this play area, are uh, 840,000 barrels a day, and it's everywhere. So uh, I had all that, and I had LNG plants that don't have any explanation. Why aren't the LNG plants in, in Pennsylvania on Marcellus and in Permian or on Brownsville that sort of shot to the ocean from Permian? They're not there at all. They're all grouped immediately south of Bossier, Haynesville, and Booth. And I think they're there to process. So I think what um, the Obama administration and EOG discovered was they had found a field that was so big the largest petrochemical and refining complex in the world couldn't handle it. And they've spent the last six years, seven years, and they spent over $400 billion to get that complex ready to handle it. And it can't handle all of it. So a lot of it's going to be exported. And that explains all these VLCC projects we're seeing in Port Natchez by IT. Uh, um, Jesus, three letters, I can't remember. And, and uh, the other big uh, marine boy projects in Freeport. And there's, so they're going to be loading, um, Enterprise is talking about 6 million barrels a day coming out of Brazoria County in Freeport uh, in their last article in S&P. So, uh, so the lightning bolt that hit me was, uh, we'd heard about these big wells that, that Jerry was drilling. And Jerry... Jerry's people were talking about six BCF recoverable per thousand feet of lateral, which is three times better than anything in Shreveport. And so we were very excited. And you got to ask yourself, how did they know they were going to get six BCF per thousand feet, which they did get from what we hear? And Enervis kind of agrees with that. Um, in any event, they got six BCF per thousand feet and they got it. They, they knew they were going to get it before they got it. So something really fantastic was happening. And then I just came to the conclusion that the thesis is not just correct. I've underestimated. We've got an oil field on top of a gigantic gas field. It all works. The whole column works in um, Buda Rose and the whole column works in Bossier, and um, Tainesville. And Jerry tipped me off. He, he was the magic moment when I got hit by lightning. He was talking. So drill, down, drill down for me on kind of the, on the Bossier. What's happening there? It's, 
you know, Jerry's the majority owner of Comstock, so they're drilling. Who else is playing there? What counties is that happening in? Who, you know, who who are the other guys running around there? Because I've heard, independent of you, I've heard buzz kind of uh, through oh, my it's... DMs on Twitter about um, about that play as well. I think it's going to be really big. Uh, I think it's going to be really big. And Jerry, Jerry uh, woke me up. His first interview, not his most recent interview, but his first interview on YouTube three years ago, Dallas Cowboys owner Jerry Jones is betting big on natural gas, is where he finally, and that's when I called you, when I had my road to Damascus moment. Um, he kept talking about NGLs, and he kept talking about LNG plants. And that's the two big anomalies. When we first got in the play, after we fought, found the load where the guy scared me off saying it's a matter of national security, the next place I went was a major right-of-way down 149. All the pipelines seem to be headed there. And as, you, as we pointed out in the earlier cast, the pipelines are spread out when they came through Bozier Buddha. And then they all come down on the one single right-of-way, which is 500 feet wide, and go into Mount Bellevue. When I got to Mount Bellevue, the, the city engineers told me that they were in a mega boom, that the, uh, they had built so much addition, so many additions to the plastic plants, that the tax rolls had doubled between uh, 2017 and 2018, 19, 20. So uh, Mount Bellevue was the giveaway because, you know, you, um, I believe NGL is highly explosive. You can't have it above ground. That's why it's in the salt dome, and that's why it all goes to Mount Bellevue. And that's how we have our handle on the metrics, because we can't measure the gas that easily. But we got, um, we now have 8.1 million barrels of NGL um, going into Mount Bellevue. Um, since when we did the podcast, we found out about two more lines. There were 630s. Then we found out about a 42 by Permian and another, another 30 by Kinder Morgan coming through Houston County, um, that area, and Polk. So we've got 8.1 million barrels. So our prediction on gas is 220 BCF a day for U.S., 100 from convention, our normal sources, and another 120 from this incremental addition. Of, and we calculate that from 8.1 million barrels of NGL going to Mount Bellevue. And then on oil, we can't really make a number. We just know it's huge. And we know it's huge because of the Mumford Hump Station. And uh, so I should stop here and address your interest in Bozier specifically, and then we'll get back to Mumford. Yeah, because I think the I, – I, so, you know, my kind of summary of our last podcast was um, the what I will say the weird things were is – you know, I, I kind of bought off on your point of if these volumes are coming from the mid-continent or it's the northern path from the Permian, why does the pipeline infrastructure seem to stream out over this area and look a lot more like gathering as opposed to long-haul transport and then gather back? That was weird. That was weird to me. That, that was weird to me, Greg. And then... The other thing that was weird to me, I got some uh, DMs through anonymous people on uh, Twitter, and um, 
there, there were some stories that were like, Hey, you know, I don't know if what Greg is saying is true or not. I will say we've done some plumbing with some pipelines that are called project X. And normally when a pipeline's brought into, you know, our system, it's called whoever the owner of the pipeline is or the supply. It'll be like the X online or whoever. And when, you know, this person and these people would kind of ask about X, they were told, shut up. So those were those were the two things from from kind of the last podcast that I always thought were weird. And I think the new stuff, which you're going to jump on now, is just this Bozier play. And like I said, I'm hearing some stuff about this outside of you. Well, you know, the uh, we call pipelines that don't have an operator bastard pipelines. You know, they're foundlings. They don't have a daddy and a mommy. And that's I I don't know how much of the system is bastard pipelines. We we described four. One at um, one at Stoneham, where the uh, a great big Gatex cleaning tank or cleaning facility is, and a lot of big uh, three phase. I'm fairly confident that's going to turn into a major above ground oil storage facility and shipping point down to Freeport. And there's another one, um, uh, which is, I think, part of the NGL system that's just uh, a little bit west of Dayton. I think I found two more. Um, We've never had the budget to take all the GPS coordinates on the 55,000 photographs to really get it pinned down. And another thing I want to stress before we get into talking about Bozier is everybody's got to understand that I didn't have much in the way of um, information feed. I didn't have people telling me, you know, normally when I do scouting, I have a lot of contacts who feed me and put me on things. And that's what our oil and gas franchise is proud of. We can, you know, we get information that puts us on a hot spot pretty quick, pretty early in the game so we can act. But this one, I didn't have the that's those those kind of people because th- these are pipeliners and midstream people. We don't interface with pipeliners and midstream people. I only met them coincidentally when I did the my trips along down to the petrochemical and refining and LNG centers, and there I picked up some help. But the point I want to stress to people here, and this is very very important, on the size of this thing. First off, it's so big, it's it's, it was going to overwhelm the processing capacity of the entire Gulf Coast, which is the largest petrochemical complex in the world, which is terrific for the U.S. of A. It's that big. Secondarily, it in scouting, um, every obstacle that could possibly be thrown at me was thrown at me. I have never been able to fall load to its point of com- completion. And if you follow our Twitter feed at uh, Greg Kane, Thriller Kane, you encouraged me to do that. So I did that in late December and it's up. Got a lot more stuff to add to it. But right now you can get the basic gist of what's going on. Pipelines, LNG, refineries, ethane. And Greg, what do you, and Greg, what do you mean by not being able to follow a line? It like just fences up, people blocking you? What what does that mean? Oh, it's very complicated. Well, first off, just the normal problem. You really can't follow the pipelines when they go cross country. You can only catch them at roads. So you have a very limited number of dots to figure out 
is that the same pipeline or a different pipeline? So that's just confusion. We didn't have the budget. We tried fl flying with helicopters, just prohibitive. And same thing, and fixed engine, fixed engine or fixed wing aircraft, just lousy photographs and not slow enough, too fast. And but I can tell you that to this day, uh, we were carefully watching Evans Enterprises up in Waco. They were building a lot of the stuff, and we followed the loads, and we never successfully followed a load. We followed a huge frac sand. Um, operation uh, in Conroe on thirteen fourteen, and it went up into Robertson County and stopped at the. All the drivers went up there and they, they carried that those boxes. Uh, sometimes the pressure tanks, but mainly those boxes for frac sand. And we never successfully found where the sand was going. Uh, they would just wait me out. Um, and on the Twitter feed, you'll see a big ethane cracker going through Willis. Um, Again, very dangerous. They didn't want to put it on 45, and they it was very dangerous. They had everybody there with these things that look like uh, shuffleboard, um, tool, you know, shuffleboard instruments, and they were raising power lines. Anybody could have been electrocuted. And of course, when you get close and try to photograph it with the care camera, we got hit by an Amazon patent. Uh, 25, 30 feet from a load. Um, oh, and that's something I forgot to say about the load down in, um, in, in 105, where the guy said it was Mayor of National Security. When, when I went home, all my photographs of the flange were red blo red blotches. All my photographs when I got close to the ethane cracker, red blotches. So the government's clearly involved here. There's high levels of secrecy. Can you imagine... But you've got bucket trucks and everything taking an ethane cracker up to the vicinity of the Vic well. And um, they're going to process the ethane right there. So they're going to have a lot of ethane if they're doing that. And uh, we never found the location for that either. And, um, and when they pulled over, we're talking about five bucket trucks, three, four escort vehicles, a motorcycle escort sitting, doing nothing for four hours. And I finally gave up and didn't and said, "Hey, I'm breaking off surveillance. Gosh, please get up there and get this stuff done before day. You lose daylight and somebody gets electrocuted." They really have put a lid on this thing. Um, I said, um, when I did the Twitter feed, I invited all the journalists in in energy and tech in Houston to to take a look at it, and all of them just refused to even talk to me. I just get no reactions whatsoever. I'm just talking to you know, uh, a, a black hole. We're going into a black hole, and that just tells you how big it is. So, how many? So, how many? Well, in the in the deep Bozier, do you have kind of a well count? What are other players? You hear any kind of IP rates? Any of any of that intelligence? We're hearing we're hearing um, <laughs> uh, 35, 45 million a day which is a very nice rate. We're hearing six BCF EUR per thousand feet of lateral. Um, and then um, uh, the, the perspective area in Robertson is rather limited, sort of like a horn or a uh, fairly narrow trend. Uh, they don't do it. It's only about five miles wide and it's about 10, 12 miles long. But once you get into Leon County, um, you know, play maps that I've seen from the 2000s when people were drilling that vertically. Um, it's a 
gigantic blob. And Comstock's uh, leased about a 550,000 acre perspective area. It's very, very hit or miss leasing, but the, if you just connect the dots, the only portion of the county that's not perspective based on connecting the dots is the northwest corner uh, up against Limestone County. And they're right on the border of Freestone, which tells us it could go northeast through there. They're right on the border, the entire border of Madison, and we assume it's going to go into Madison. Pardon me, Houston. On the entire eastern border of Houston, we think it's headed into Houston. There have been tests that I played by Anna Darko, really huge wells that pressure depleted because the frack didn't work at Whitehead, just beyond Crockett. So we assume um, Houston is 100%. Now, the reason we say Houston is 100% is not geological. It's the Arbuckle 2 pipeline system that One Oak, who is primarily an NGL player, they're going to play two 30-inch lines east-west and two 30-inch 30, uh, lines north-south. And wouldn't you find it that in the very center of that tic-tac-toe board square, tic-tac-toe board configuration, is the, the gigantic ETS uh, joint venture with EOG, 7030, full cryo stainless stripping plant. And so the liquids will be stripped in Houston County, and they'll head down to Mount Bellevue on those pipelines I mentioned that your sources helped me learn about. You know, they go right through Kennard, 42 Permian by Permian, and then another one by Kinder Morgan. But I want to emphasize that a lot of the pipelines are bastard pipelines. At this X, Project X, a lot of the pipelines are nameless. And then another interesting thing, the 48s, we very early had um, information about the 48s going to the two LNG centers. Um, uh, basically, originally there was a plant. Uh, plan uh, by new next era era or next decade at uh, Galveston, and that that fell through because the Corps of Engineers wouldn't come through on some permits. But Chenier's up and running and in a big way in Corpus, and so and Dow's added another train. Chenier just finished completion when I went down and photographed in 2019. We completely missed that one. Um, we can see 48 scrap pipe all along the Aransas Pass. So the 48, I conclude the 48 went into, um, into uh, Chenier at Corpus and probably a spur went into Freeport. Now the 48 going to Sabine Pass, Cameron, and Hackberry has been laid. But by that time, they were hep to me photographing the lines. And if you look at the Twitter feed, you'll see the lines were laid, the pipe was laid out for 20 miles when we flew it. And the excavate, excavators were spaced, you know, one or two excavators about every six, 700 yards. And they changed methodology. Oh, and they had big pipe yards. Like the really big one was at Porter Springs in Houston County. They, they, they filled and emptied 12 acres of pipe that was 15 feet high uh, four or five times. But once they went, they got the 48, we could never find the 48. Now, we found uh, a lariat yard with all the fittings and transitions, and it was mind-boggling. And I'm convinced that the 48, uh, what they did is they changed methodology. They would dig maybe a couple hundred yards of, of trench. They'd pull the pipe out of where they had it hidden. They'd weld it up, put it in. 
bury it immediately, cover it with grass seed and, and wet uh, hay. I forget what you call that uh, when you put wet hay down. And they got it. They, we, know where, we know where the yard was for all the fittings and transitions, but we never saw the pipe. We caught some of it at NYU in um, uh, uh, Beaumont Pipe Yard. And we caught some of it actually on Exxon's uh, refinery uh, locations. Um, we also heard a 48 was going to go uh, from um, Cleveland for oil uh, to, uh, Mount, uh, to uh, Beaumont. And we know Exxon has got a deal with it. I think the deals with EOG to basically double the size of that refinery. And we're also fairly confident that that refinery is being outfitted with uh, atmospheric and vacuum distillation, which is cheap, easy. It isn't cat cracking. You don't have to smash the molecules into pieces and rehydrogenate them and generate H2S and use all these tricky uh, platelets that uh, you know provide catalysis. And that's a really messy process and dirty and expensive. So I think they're just going to take these light booted crudes and kind of gently cook them. They never laid a 48, but they laid dual 42s, and security there was so tight. We got people. We got people who told us it was there. It's a verbal. We could never get near it. They had escort vehicles on every right right away access line, uh, and we couldn't get near it. So we think they're 242 oil lines running from Baytown uh, through. Um, the Beaumont Port Arthur complex. Uh, if you look at the Twitter feed, I'm going to add to that. They put dual 24s to every, and this is why we're talking about an, a Manhattan project. This is a coordinated effort where all the companies that are normally competitors are coordinating and working together. And 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 also the equipment is massive. I mean, um, if you look at the photographs of the excavation of the 24 going into, into Motiva, a Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabian investment. I mean, there's like 22 um, claw, claw tractors digging 15 feet apart. Clearly, they're worried about satellites and drones. And, but they can't stop me from shooting because I'm on a public road. Interestingly, the Houston Police Department and the Beaumont Police Department have instituted a new policy that they will I don't know if they arrest you, but they sure make it very unpleasant for you to take photographs in those areas. And fortunately, I got all my photographs taken before that policy was implemented. So they want to keep a lid on this thing. And it's oil and gas. And <clears throat> we know that there were big uh, build-outs at uh, Norco, a uh, uh, big one at Marathon Garyville, and another big one at, at uh, Valero St. Charles. And we're betting that what we saw moving in are the towers moving in are vacuum and, and atmospheric distillation. Easy stuff for light crude, not dirty, no big energy input, no need to put in free radical hydrogen, you know, no worries about H2S, just little kettles that make, you know, go through a cooling jacket and then give you the, you know, the pentane, the hexane, the octane, the nonane, the decane that you need to burn gas in. And that crude has got to be either WTI or Buda crude. And that far east, I say it's Buda crude. There's not enough crude coming out of West Texas to support just the infrastructure and the um, export facilities that in Brazorian 
Corpus Christi. So there's a second field that's really good. Cool. Well, Greg, well, Greg, this has uh, again been a cool, a cool update. And uh, you know, like I said, I, I've heard you know, kind of a, sounds like our our big development is just the addition of the Bozier play, and and I've heard you know grabbing a beer in a bar, talking to a couple of uh, field hand type folks. Uh, about stuff going on. I've gotten some direct messages uh, from Anons on Twitter uh, about that play. So I appreciate you kind of giving us the, the heads up on it. It'll be interesting to, to see what happens there. Do you think we've covered the subject fairly thoroughly? Yeah, I think so. I think, uh, I think you know, with the original, you did a good job on the laying out your thesis on the original Buddha Gate podcast. I mean, you know, my kind of pushback on just what I've seen is, you know, I had um, uh, Treadstone in uh, the Fort Trinidad field, and you know, we had so we were we were actually drilling verticals and we were co-mingling the the buddha the Glen Rose, the georgetown and all we were making some great wells but it did seem much more limited so i don't know that and i and so i don't know that the the expansion of the oil play uh is is there but like i said it's it's weird that the pipeline infrastructure in effect looks more like gathering because if it was coming from the mid-continent or it was coming from Permian, the north version, I mean, you just loop pipelines, right? I mean, why go get more right-of-ways and, and the like? Then um, that being said, I always kind of have a skepticism of, you know, because I've seen every shale play in America, and I know that the, the going-in geologics are never correct. I mean, it's, you get in there, you need literally, I'll make this up a hundred or 150 wells, um, with call it nine months to a year production history to really know what you got. And sometimes you do wildly better. And sometimes, you know, you do materially worse. So I've always been a, a skeptic about geologic models before you actually, you actually drill stuff. But then again, like I told you, I've gotten DMs from uh, anonymous folks in and around the uh, the Gulf Coast complexes, the plastics, refining, et cetera, that are coming back with, you know, hey, don't know if this means anything, but there's some weird stuff happening. So it's a it's a cool story to follow. Well, let me let me just uh, a few more things here. Uh, sure. And, uh, and then I want to talk a little bit about what this has meant to me in my life. You have, please do because you've talked about priests and you know people losing their jobs and stuff i have a component like that too okay so um so the the main thing i want to tell everybody is i think the promise of frack has been fulfilled aubrey mcclendon god bless him we lost him he said, hey, you know, we're going to be able to manufacture this stuff. This isn't going to be hit or miss exploration anymore. It's just going to be well after well after well after well. And that did not materialize, and the EUR stunk and hyperbolic decline. And that's not the case anymore. Six BCF per thousand feet, if you look at the Enervis article, um, you can get it from Enervis on their analysis of the uh, Comstock wells, and they way under 
estimate the recoveries, and there are various reasons for that, but they just don't know the inside story as well as we do. It's 6 BCF. It's stacked laterals, guys. They're going to be able to drill 165, 68, 171, 174, 177, 18,000. They could have 10 wells on a 200-acre unit, all 36 or 42Bs per well. And I think they're going to do it like clockwork. I think it's a manufacturing process. And think about it. All that impermeable mudstone and shale, you know, the holding this incredible uh, inherent, uh, geological inheritance that we've got of uh, detrimental material that's been carried down for millions of years and turned into oil and gas just sitting unaccessible. And now, I think it's all open. I think gas prices and oil prices are going to drop. Um, Middies fields, uh, they're old. They're 100 years, 80 years old. Bottom hole pressures are weak. They're on secondary and tertiary flood. Our, these wells, those exposure wells are going to flow with from 18,000 pounds of FTP at bottom hole. Pardon me, not FTP, 18,000 pounds. Bottom hole pressure, the FTPs are going to be high, really high. And there's still a lot of pressure in the Buddha rows. You know, maybe three, four thousand pounds. People can help me on that. I'm just kind of guessing, but you know, these reservoirs have push, and they're new, and they've been opened up by the frac technology that Aubrey and other advocates said would eventually turn exploration into a manufacturing process. And we're there now, and now it's a land game, which is exciting for me. I mean, you've got a clear title on whole counties, and that's what we're gearing up for. We're really excited about it. Now, there's two more things. <clears throat> the thing we can't measure is the oil. Now, we know the allowable is astronomical, 6,400 barrels a day on 80-acre spacing on the field rules that EOG got in 2015. And we've yet to see that, but the commission looked at the data and the engineers, and they came back to the engineers and said, God, these numbers are really high. You know, Are you sure you want, can do this? And they said, this is the economic rate we want to produce at. And I wouldn't argue with EOG engineers. EOG is, in my opinion, the best company in the business. Really smart. So the last thing is oil. Um, and we know the, 40, the 48 didn't run, but 242s did run. And they're all connected to every storage facility and <clears throat> every refinery in, in Beaumont-Port Arthur complex. And they did the same thing, cookie cutter, from Baton Rouge, Exxon Baton Rouge. Um, to Motiva, to Berryville, to the two, um, uh, ex, uh, to Valero St. Charles, Valero Mew, and all the way down to Phillips Alliance. They're all tied into 224s, fed by dual 42s. So that part of the Manhattan Project, the replumbing of the Gulf Coast to handle this gigantic dual field, is complete. And of course, 11 ethane crackers, the biggest ethane crackers in the world. There are only 16 of them. There's uh, two in Holland, one in Germany. Um, there's uh, one in Taiwan, uh, two in Saudi Arabia, and 11 in this area of the Gulf Coast where um, Bossier and uh, Bossier NGLs are going to hit. And then some additional NGL coming out of Buda because the allowable for 6,400 barrels a day calls for uh, 20 to 40 million cubic feet of gas. 
the Kruger-associated gas, so that's going to have some NGLs in it. So we are in a revolution that's going to change the whole world. And I'm convinced of it. And $400 billion of infrastructure can't be wrong. Two more things to point out. I traveled three days a week with a camera. Nobody gave me much in the way of pointers. None of the loads I tried to follow I ever, I ever found. So the security was tight. Can you imagine? The best I could do in a day is one county, maybe one and a half. How many, how much stuff did I miss? And I've got an enormous system already. And the Twitter feed shows that. It's much bigger than what I photographed. And I don't know where it is because when they went to this new methodology where they just, you know, dig about, you know, six, 800 feet, weld it all up, put it in, bury it, cover it with uh, mulch, mulch, that's the moist mulch and grass seed. You can't figure it anymore. And, and most of it's not on the Railroad Commission. We proved that. Uh, you can see that on the Twitter feed. So we're dealing with something that's going to change the country and change our competitive position in the world. And then just, and then the big thing we got to look for that will confirm this. And then I think the thesis is completely incontestable. Anybody who argues with it is just bullheaded. And anybody who calls it hyperbole is a fool. And I've had to deal with a lot of people calling it hyperbole. I'm very disappointed in the whole finance structure in New York, the Stanford, Harvard guys, and the um, Wharton guys I'm, I've had the chance to meet with. Very few of them will even give me an audience. When I get an audience, they just say, oh, these numbers are crazy. We can't confirm that in the press. I say, look at the damn photographs, hard evidence. What kind of nonsense is this? You need to see it in the press. The press is being and told not to cover it. And so, well, their response is, well, we can't show this to management. And I, it's just too big. And it just sounds like hyperbole. I said, look, guys, if you put that in a blue book, when you were taking exams at, at Wharton or Harvard or Stanford, you'd get an F. That's not analysis. That's just sort of a flippant response to people who don't want to do their work properly. And Chuck, that's everywhere in this business. The land work stinks. The scouting salt has the scouting in the, the scouting component of oil companies has been destroyed. Work standards stink, and the finance people have their head up their ass. Can I say that on a podcast? Sure, Chuck. I'm Chuck. I didn't mean to be vulgar, but real, everybody really needs to to examine themselves and do something about it. And young people need to get on top of this. You can make your fortune here and have a really exciting. Uh, career. I'm 71. I got here pretty late. I'm sorry I don't have the, the chance to hit this at 30. So everybody should be focused on this and go after it and try to make your fortune. And the last thing I want to just mention before I get into what it cost me to get here, which is a very sad story about me and the industry, is, um, you know, the pump station in Mumford. Um, it's the biggest pump station in the world, except for Bailey. Now, Bailey is is there for a reason. It's in the flat the foothills of the Rockies in, in southern South Dakota. And all the trains come in there, hodgepodge, different size loads, different weight loads. <clears throat> now that's fine when you're going across the Great Plains. You can have odd size, odd size loads and too much weight, no big deal. But when you're crossing the Rockies, you're either on trestles, which are weight sensitive, or you're going through tunnels, which um, you know are really hard rock. I guess it's granite, and it was cut 
you know, the, all the poor Chinese people are buried under the right of way and cut that stuff and got blown up doing it. So when you go through there, you have to resort and re slice and dice the freight trains and put the heavy stuff to go through the mountain, through the tunnels, and the light stuff and bulky stuff goes on the trestles. And then it gets to California, it has to be all reorganized and shipped back to its true destination. Now, the hump station, so if you look at photographs, and I'm going to add that to the Twitter feed next week. If you look at Bailey, which is the biggest hump station in the world, you see this incredible slicing and dicing of freight trains. There is no such process going on at Mumford, and it's almost as big. It's capital-wise, it's the biggest expenditure of UPR in its history. So it's bigger than this very complicated facility at Bailey that's got, you know, things that pull the cars by themselves, sort of like a click-click-click-click thing on a roller coaster. And then they've got all these magnetic things that break the coupling. Human beings don't even need to touch it. They just run it from these big towers with glass windows and reassemble the trains. They're not going to do that at Matt Mumford. They're just, the problem is they have to have so damn many trains. And we know they've got three, three 840s popping right out there. They've got four or five big 250,000 barrel tanks. Valero's telling everybody it's for diesel. You don't put refined products in bulk tanks like that. They go in 50 and 30,000 barrel jobbing tanks. So that doesn't happen. And Mumford doesn't add up. It's doing no business at all. When I go there and photograph it, there are no um, uh, car trailer trailer cars for cars coming up from Houston, uh, and there are no gondola cars. There are no um, container cars from the ships that carry you know carry the 40s and 20 foot containers that you got, you know everybody uses for their put their tools in on on their ranch and stuff. Um, there's just no, there's just none of the normal cars you see in a right. standard yards in Fort Worth or in Houston. So it's yeah. all for oil. And it, and then we know that there's a straight shot on Union Pacific right away, right to Freeport. And we talked to people at Freeport. And what gave it away to me is the very nice young lady. Um, her name is <coughs> she's a reporter for S and P. So she went down to talk to the people at Enterprise who were building this oil, um, this oil uh, marine boy that's going to load um, 2.1 million barrels of oil a day into dual, two tankers offshore of Freeport. Freeport is a lousy harbor, but it's a great deep water port. So you can get close to the coast if you have, um, you know, a lot of if, if you have a lot of depth right. on the ship. So in any event, she said in her article that this facility that Enterprise and oil tanking are building is going to be have access to 6.5 million barrels of oil a day and storage of 300 million barrels. So let me just put that in perspective. West Texas cannot in any way, when you look at all the stuff they put into Corpus already, in any way. And all, a lot of their oil goes to Cushing, right? The, the North Route. So there's no way they're going to have enough oil to, ha to handle those numbers she's throwing away. And then she says there's going to be access to 300 million barrels of storage. Well, 
The biggest storage in the world, and it's scattered all over the place, is in and around Cushing. That's 85 million barrels. And then the next big consolidated, all in the same place storage, is Ras Tanur, which is at the very bottom of the Gawar field. Now, if the biggest oil producer in the world, Saudi, has their biggest storage facility, and you know their oil all has to be shipped out by ship. Because they're, you know, they're geographically undesirable, as is all are all the other fields. That's another thing that's going to hurt them here when we when we open up with this big flow to the Gulf. Is their their oil's kind of stranded? Their gas is really stranded. But in any event, if you look at um, those numbers, three hundred million barrels of above ground storage just is staggering. What a what right. possible field could generate that much oil? Right. Well, really shocked. I phoned down there and I got nowhere. And then I talked to somebody whose name will remain um, concealed. And he told me, um, I said, look, what's going on with this hump station? It looks like a, it looks like a crazy. There's no reason to put a hump station in a non-urban area where there's no manufacturer, Amazon delivery stations or what are they doing? And he said, Oh, he says that we know all about that. We just thought people would wouldn't pay attention. He says we're going to lay, um, we're going to we've got an eight thousand acre track and a two thousand acre track. We're going to build twelve hundred two hundred fifty thousand barrel tanks here, exactly where I don't know because you know Freeport's pretty well developed. But this guy told yeah. me, and he knew what he was talking. <clears throat> two twelve hundred tanks, three hundred million barrels of oil ground storage. That's where the S and P gal got the. Yeah, that's uh that's crazy. Well uh close this, close this up real quick. I know you wanna talk about the, the personal price you've paid on all this, so close close us out with that. Yeah, well I wanna I wanna talk about uh what the industry does to people who are disruptors and who do their work right. And um, so let me just tell you that uh, after I did the bust on Savelle, um, my partner sold it back to ConocoPhillips for three million bucks. Uh, the position was worth a billion dollars. Um, they wanted to be able to generate prospects and basically got threatened by ConocoPhillips. ConocoPhillips says, look, guys, you know, we'd love to work with you. We'd like to look at your all your prospects. But if Greg keeps doing all this, monkey around with our titles, our management has takes a very dim view of that. And I don't think we're going to be looking at any of your prospects. So I was pushed out of the company. I sold the thing for a song for three million bucks. The override produced over $80 million. Uh, that's just 3% of the 100%. It was a real disaster. And um, all of a sudden, after that, um, I um, did two Bozier plays, both of which failed. I lost my investors. And um, so I started looking for field land work. And for two years, I sent out resumes, and I never got a job in a very hot market. I never got a single job offer. Doesn't that strike you as odd, Chuck? Yeah. Well, obviously, I'd been red circled, you know, like the people in Hollywood were who were flirting with communism. So the industry, you know, pretty well put destroyed my life. 
But they didn't stop there. That's just the starter, the, the warm-up. So in 2012, I went down. I couldn't find work anywhere. So I went down, and a friend of mine, who's a, a landman, had, turned, had started doing work on finding missing heirs and uh, by using death certificates and tombstones. It's very interesting. And I and he had a lot of uh, client work. He worked for he worked for EOG, and he just says, "Look, Greg, you know, I'll show you how to do this stuff, but I don't want you busting EOG." I said, "Absolutely, we're not going to play around with any of the titles. I need to work. You know, please, please put give me work. I have no, I can't make any, I can't make a living. I've been blacklisted." And so I started work for him, and um, <clears throat> and the motels bills were killing me. So I went over to a guy who talked to me about helping me raise some money. And I, I and he I knew his son had rented a house where he had a lot of extra spare bedrooms and I rented the bedroom and I said that's great and it cuts my motel bills I can keep working on this uh, airship stuff and uh, tombstone stuff and um, when I got there there were a lot of cat um, you know uh, TV cables everywhere some of them running in even into the ceiling fans I didn't pay a lot of attention to that. And a lot of cables running out to a uh, um, an RV in the driveway. So uh, I had to detach retina and I formed a cataract. I had to go get a physical. So the morning I, I had to go, I, I was having vertigo. I was not doing well at all. I had no money. And uh, so I asked the guy, son, can you drive me to the doctor's? But I had an appointment uh, with Arthur Berman to do some stuff. Arthur's a great, great guy to work with. He's a you know real uh, student of reservoirs. And um, so I tried to call my landman to say if, see if we could get an appointment set up to talk to a conference call with Arthur. And uh, the phone just went stop, and the line was cut. So I said, oh, "Gee, I must be around some source of interference." So I went out on. You know, got away from the house and went out on the driveway. And I did it again, and zup! Now the phone was cut. So tried it one more time, phone's cut, and I said, okay, somebody who's got real technical sophistication doesn't want me talking to you. What kind of mess am I in? So my blood pressure goes up to like 250. I'm just like freaked out. And so we drive down to the doctor and the doctor says, Greg, your, your vitals are, you're going to die. And I said, well, you know, doctor, somebody's on me. I mean, maybe I've committed some crime. You know, I do a lot of work with scouting and information and maybe, you know, some of my partners may have done something. We may be in a lot of trouble. I think I'm going to be arrested. And he says, well, you know, you need to just settle down because, you know, you're in danger of having a you know, massive stroke or a heart attack. So um, I settled down. He gave me some energy bars and stuff. And so we, and this guy's son came by and picked me up. And we went home. And as soon as I got to the house, I tried to get on the computer and bzzap, it got wiped out. So then um, um, the next day, I got up early and I got to <coughs> the phone store and bought a throwaway phone. And that phone wouldn't work. I could call 911, but nothing else. So the, the technical attack on me was really sophisticated. 
And uh, what what year is this kind of? It's 2012. 2012. Okay, so the next day, I wake I wake up in the middle of the night, and I suddenly have, I'm having a total complete nervous breakdown. I'm seeing um, Tobin maps. This is funny. Tobin maps in my visual field. And music's playing in my ears. And I didn't realize, but they'd gotten the food in the refrigerator. And they'd introduced some sort of hallucinatory drug into my bloodstream. And um, so I became, and, and it not only destroys your visual field, and it's on the back of your eyes, eyelids. You can't sleep, even if your eyelids are closed. And the music runs all the time. Now, I found on the internet these jamming devices that, attack my phones and melt at my phones. Oh, I forgot to say the, on the way to the doctor's uh, last call, the phone melt. Pardon me. So there were four instances with the phones. And the last time the phone melted. And then the computer went and then the drugs were introduced. And so I don't really know what happened after that. I was pretty well disoriented. I had not slept for three, four or five days. They swapped out all my clothes. They managed to get my wallet. They managed to get anything that I, so I couldn't get my truck, I couldn't get out of there, and I knew, I thought they were going to kill me. So I, uh, then my doctor showed up, and he, uh, it turned out all these wires went into my bedroom that were up in the fan, and he was, he didn't even come to see me, he just looked at it. Some ambulance came, and they did a, check my vitals, and, and then took a, a patch and swiped my rear end. Very bizarre stuff. And so I rallied and I took a shower and I ran into this guy's dad and said, what the fuck is going on here? And he said, uh, oh, nothing, nothing. And then they had this news van and they had these two women reporters saying, well, this guy's been, you know, indicted for, uh, you know, uh, insider trading. I don't really know what they, I went up and confronted the women and I said, what are you doing? I mean, you know, what's going on here? And they, of course, just left. So, um, I knew I was in, up against, you know, some sort of op, highly sophisticated op. And it was pretty frightening, to say the least. And um, so I just sat still because, uh, you know, I knew they had Confederates in the nearby houses. I, I thought it'd be very dangerous to be out. You know, no car, no wallet, no ID. And I don't know who I'd bump into. And I knew that people knew I was at that house. So I'd probably, if I disappeared, that would probably throw off an alarm bell. And then one day, the phones, which had been dead the entire time, came alive. And I managed to get an open line to some friends in, in Philadelphia. And we got the police over and I got out of there uh, with my friend who was uh, helping me with the airship work. So I got to his house and uh, went to bed. And... Uh, about three o'clock in the morning, the uh, hallucinogens that I've been uh, subjected to, um, they just disappeared. All this crap that was in my visual field just disappeared. The music stopped. So I went down and tried to call the poison center because I wanted to get a blood test. And uh, the line was dead. So I pounded on my friend's door and woke up his wife, and they were very angry at me. And they said, what are you doing? You know, you're a big pain in the ass. You got dr you're, you're a drug addict. You know, everybody's disgusted with you. Can't you just leave us alone? I said, no, the line's been cut. I've been poisoned. I've been drugged. we got to get a sample of this. And I had, um, he took the phone away from me, handed it to his wife. We, we had a fairly violent argument. 
with an old friend. And then um, I uh, came back and uh, she came back and says, phone's fine. But she wouldn't give it to me. So we, he refused to take me to the poison center for a blood test. We went over to the local hospital. He whispered, at, and within my earshot, 302, which is involuntary commitment. So my credibility with the doctors was just zero after that. I got lectured on taking my lithium because I'd had depression about seven years earlier and a lot of other nonsense. And so my sister was going to arrive to pick me up in the next day. And I thought I was okay uh, for that time being. I got up in the morning and um, they had hot water running through both with cold and hot taps. So I got scalded. They'd rearranged all the uh, cups and saucers and uh, forks and knives, I guess, to confuse me and convince I was, me I was going crazy. Um, wow, this is, man, this, oh, this is just is really serious stuff. This, and then the next day, serious stuff, and it's really, really crazy. And well, yeah. I mean, what this is what's called a dead man's switch. I'm afraid it's going to happen again. That's why I want this audience to know that there are really bad things going on in this business blacklisting, kidnapping, drugging, potentially murder. And think of the stakes, Chuck. The stakes are big, aren't they? The, 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 the money's involved. Yeah, no, the the stakes are always big when uh, when you combine politics, money, and uh, and the like. Well, well, I'll just finish because it's it's quite a story. So, anyway, my sister's due to arrive, and it looks like I'm out of this out of the jam, and uh, we're. The guy's wife decides to cook some spaghetti before we go up to pick up the airport. She gets a phone call from her girlfriend. Oh, she's making spaghetti. She goes out of the room, and I hear a male voice come on her cell phone cell. So she had a handler who was directing her. She came back in, served me my spaghetti out of the pot, and then took hers and her husband's spaghetti out of the microwave. So I knew that they were going to drug me. So I refused to have anything to do with it and left. He screamed and yelled at his wife. She disappeared. We went to the airport, and uh, next day I flew home. And uh, that's what the industry did to me. And I think it's pretty scary, and I think it's a disgrace. And that's what happens if you're a disruptor. You stick your nose where it doesn't belong. And we've had other incidents that occurred in 2015. Same deal. Not not with this kind of terrifying um, aspect, but I'm really down on the industry. I think that there are, you know, definitely people who need to be investigated. Um, these people were people I knew uh, for the most part, and behind them, there clearly is an op, and they do it for a living. They destroy people's lives, and God knows, probably even kidnap and kill them, and uh, they're untouchable. That's the world we live in, folks. Greg, Greg, that's uh, that that's crazy. But I appreciate you sharing. So, dead man's hand. Anything happens to me, you know, it was an oil company, and I you could I've only mentioned two, and CRK isn't one. Well, Greg, be safe. 